Our text is the Gospel lesson which was just read from John chapter 8. And as I'm sure you heard in a Gospel, with a lot of heated exchanges, this one is white hot. Before it's over, before it's over, people describe, now get this, people describe that the outset of the text at the front end of the text, as those who had believed Jesus. People described as those who had believed Jesus will be called slaves of sin, liars, children of Satan, and murderers. So we'll make three points. Liberty, they're on the back inside page of your bulletin. Liberty, paternity, divinity, that is not the national motto of France. There is a superficial resemblance. Uh, Liberty, paternity, divinity. First then, liberty. Liberty. Now, as mentioned, Jesus is speaking. You see this in verse 31. He's speaking to the Jews who had believed him. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So he's going right at the root of the problem. He knows that their belief, such as it is, is not deeply rooted. Right? It's spurious. It's superficial. And he knows their confession is shallow. And it's distorted. So, here's how one knows the difference between people who are hanging around Jesus for the signs or for some other motive... And those who, as he puts it here, those who are really, notice that word, really my disciples. As opposed to some sort of formal, I checked the Christian box, if you asked me. Right? Opposing really being disciples is this kind of transitory belief of the crowds. We see this over and over in the Gospels. Jesus is not seeking churchgoers. Nor is he even seeking people who self-identify as Christians. He's not even seeking people who believe in a sort of basic kind of way. His word winnows. He seeks disciples. And disciples are learners, students of the master. That's what the word means. And how we demonstrate that we're really disciples is told to us by our Lord in the text. He says, if you hold to his word or to his teaching. Now, holding here means abiding in. Jesus will sometimes use that word. Abiding in and obeying the word. Cleaving to it. Keeping it. Adhering to it. Sticking to it with perseverance. And this, Jesus says, is the mark of true believers, of true disciples. That's what they do. So one's ongoing relationship with Scripture, that's the critical barometer of one's relationship to Jesus. We ought not to be deceived here. We have a simple diagnostic test. There's, There's simply no discipleship. There may be Christian activity, Right? There may be some kind of belief or confession, but there is no discipleship apart from a kind of abiding in the word. 
So I want to take a couple minutes to explore this abiding a little bit. So if you think of abiding, think of it as indwelling or inhabiting. This is the thrust of where this word goes. Now, in the middle of the 20th century, there was a famous Hungarian physical chemist, a man named Michael Polanyi. Polanyi was an accomplished scientist. He, he did work with Einstein. But he essentially becomes, in the latter part of his life, a pretty well-known philosopher. He got interested and deeply concerned about the Soviet unions. Now, remember, this is the middle of the Cold War. This is 1950s, 40s, 50s, 60s. He's, he was worked with Soviet scientists because he was an Eastern European, and he was concerned about how they could distort the true ends of science. And so he ended up writing a lot about how scientists and ordinary people come to know things. What does it mean for human beings to know? And he develops this notion of what he called indwelling, right, or inhabiting. And it's very compatible. It's derivative to or from what Jesus says here about abiding or remaining. It works something like this. The mind, the human mind, or the human soul, in obedience and submission, in love and affection for the thing that it's studying, becomes united to the thing it's seeking to know. Right? This is not a particularly new idea. Aristotle basically said the same thing. There's a sense in which the thing that you seek to know is in your mind. You get, there's a union. Polanyi says, of a personal union of love and affection between the person and what the person seeks to know. So the mind then abides, the mind indwells, the mind inhabits. It takes up residence inside the thing it's coming to know. So we see this, for example, in life. If we take up, say, a long-term project with some complexity, right? it could be anything. It could be remodeling your bathroom. It could be building a supercomputer, whatever it is. You take up a project, and you seek to execute it well. What you're called to do, what you'll find yourself doing, is abiding or indwelling inside of the thing. Right? Your mental life will, be, will slip into it. And this is how one sees behind the surface or below the surface to the deep interconnections, to the structures of things. This is how we don't have marbles in our head, we have webs. This is how we see the mysterious order that exists. The splendor of the truth. And this is why you can wake up, whether you're a scientist or a non-scientist, at 2 o'clock in the morning with the answer to something you've been working on for weeks and weeks and weeks and months. Or it comes to you at some strange place or time because the thing is never really off your mind. Because you've come to indwell it or inhabit it. Right? This kind of intimacy with, and this kind of intensity toward the subject in view, this is the kind of relationship Jesus has in mind when he says to you, hold to my word. Inhabit my word. Indwell in it. Obediently. Let the word's order and the word's beauty light up your interior life. Or put it differently, let your interior life be interior to the word. 
Think about that. The inner mystery of who you are as a person, your secret thoughts, your interior life, that life is to be inside of another life, namely the life of Holy Scripture. So that if a person wants to find you, they know where to knock. If a person's looking for the inner secret mystery of your interior life, they can say, I know where he dwells. He dwells inside the word of the Christ. You can find him there. You can find his thoughts and his affection and his wills and desires. His interior life inhabits or indwells the word. Extract yourself then, Jesus says, from a casual external relationship to my word. Get inside the architected house of Holy Scripture. All of this is implied by this rich word of abiding or indwelling. And so we are then called as disciples to live, or again, to to take up your emotional, mental life inside the word and its world, the word and its thought forms, the word and its vocabulary, the word and its interconnections, so that the cognitive universe of Scripture is your cognitive universe. This is what it means to abide. And by the way, Polanyi came to very similar conclusions with this, about this is what scientists do, this is what human beings do when they actually want to know something intimately. So this abiding in love and in obedience, this is what those who are truly, Jesus says, really learners, disciples do. Then, Jesus says, then, notice the then, then you'll know the truth. Knowing the truth here is almost marital. It's being one flesh, one mind, one soul with the truth. Again, it's not some external relationship where there's a list of stuff and you say, yeah, yeah, I believe all that. That's not what disciples do. Disciples know the truth. And then the truth liberates you or sets you free. So Jesus wants your freedom, your liberty. And this reference to freedom in front of his Jewish audience evokes what today we might call a response of Jewish privilege. They're guilty of Jewish privilege, covenant privilege, election privilege, inherited privilege. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been the slaves of anybody. How can you say we shall be set free? Look at this heritage we have. It's a remarkable claim, really, given the history, the history of slavery. You know, in in the Jewish people's lives, right? They were enslaved by the Egyptians and later by the Babylonians and now in another form by the Romans. And they stand here in front of Jesus and say, we were never slaves of anybody. But Jesus, of course, is not talking about that kind of slavery, is he? He tells us, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. So for Jesus, it's sin That's an enslaving power. And it grips every human person. There's a deep irrationality about sin. It's deeply irrational. This is why we we really can't tame it. Or this is why we often find ourselves or our friends saying, how could that person know this and then do that? Well, because there's a deep irrationality about sin. It's not just a cognitive defect. 
Almost everybody in the world knows the right thing to do, and very few people can do it. So this sin's like a power. And in that sense, sin is the opposite. It's opposed to the beautiful, deep rationality of truth. So with respect to sin, right, Jesus is saying to his audience, Caesar is a slave, every bit as much as his slaves are slaves. But the one who is the son, Jesus says, now here he means everything he said in John's gospel, the unique son of the father, the one who has life in himself, the one who has authority to raise the dead and judge the world. If that son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus is looking for disciples indeed, and people who are really disciples are really free indeed. So Jesus as we sang about this morning, has come to save us, and that means he's come to set you at liberty. That means he wants to deliver you both from sin's guilt, but also from its enslaving power. Sin's a power. So I want to say a couple things about this freedom, this liberty that Jesus comes to bring us. Notice it's a gift. It's an exodus out of the realm of bondage. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free. It's an act only the Son can accomplish or achieve. It's gracious, he's telling his audience, and it's free. It doesn't come from your pedigree or your church membership. right? It's it's something I bestow. But notice also, and this is clear in the text as well, that to maintain or strengthen this genuine freedom is an ongoing task. Right? It's discipleship in the word that he's just talked about. Notice the text says this, If you abide in my word, then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So the Son sets us free through the truth of his word, but he maintains our freedom. He keeps us free as we inhabit his word. So this is a radically different freedom, right? A richer kind of freedom than the debased freedom celebrated by our culture. This is, in one sense, the heart of many of our public debates. I mean, you could put it in multiple ways. It's all about what is a human person, perhaps, would be one way to see our public debates. What is the human person? What are they made for? What are their ends? Another way to get at the problem would be to say, what notion of freedom is in view? Today, freedom is viewed as freedom from constraints, or freedom for individual choice, freedom to follow your heart. And so it's a freedom that's cut off from any concept of the common good. Or even for, the, for the, any concept of the ends for which human beings were made. It is, as one writer called it, diabolical freedom. Here, with the text, Jesus sees freedom two ways. Negatively, negatively it's freedom from sin. And bondage. And positively, it's freedom for obedience, freedom for sonship and service, freedom in and for the truth. There are there is no one less free than a person who just follows their heart. True freedom here is to have one's interior desires shaped so that what we ought to do is what we want to do. That's liberty. And so, 
This freedom, this glorious freedom of the children of God is what Jesus promises and says he gives through the word. And yet it has no room in these descendants of Abraham who are seeking to kill Jesus. Right? Jesus says to them cryptically, you're doing what you've heard from your father. And that brings me to the second point, paternity. Jesus has already implied that they have a father other than Abraham. And they say in verse 39, Abraham is our father. This is their complacent privilege. Right? They're unaware that in chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Right? Whether it's Jewish flesh or Gentile flesh, it's flesh. You have to be born of the Spirit. And Jesus' Father can raise up sons to Abraham out of these stones. And so what Jesus is saying here is, look, I'm going to define paternity, namely who your father is, by family resemblance, by family likeness. Right? If you're Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. He believed God's word, he obeyed it, he clung to the promise. So Paul says much the same thing. Paul says Jewishness or circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's not an intrinsic, inalienable right. True Jews are those who are circumcised inwardly. And so the people in their seeking to kill Jesus are, he says, doing the works of their own father. Now here he's getting closer and closer. He's eventually going to say it. You're doing the works of your own father. And at this point, they're tired <laughs> of his casting aspersions about their heritage and who their father is. Jesus has already dropped two hints about this. So they protest. In fact, they go on the offensive. We are not illegitimate children. These people are vicious. They just seem to be a normal crowd following around, right? But this this gets to the heart of a kind of... uh, I mean, we can add to the other things I said before that there's no viciousness like religious viciousness. Right? In other words, they're saying, you should talk about fatherhood. You should talk about fatherhood. Your mother was pregnant out of wedlock. We're not. This is 30-some years ago. Like, they'd heard the rumors People knew about the circumstances of Jesus' birth. You know what these people do? They store it up in their memory and their little checklist, right, to bring it out at the right appropriate time to slander him and his parents. They, these, this is the thing about religion in this form. It always counts. It always remembers people's failures. It always is ready to use them. It never forgets. You know, you should be the kind of person who forgets other people's sins. Like, you shouldn't even remember them. Like, yeah, they did something seven or eight. I don't remember what it was. If you're the kind of person who says, but I remember. It was six years ago, and we had this situation, and they said and did that. That's a sign of being on the wrong side of this argument. These people are like that. They're like that. We know something about your background. And we're going to use it now. We're not born of fornication. Of course, they're wrong. But it looked like fornication, didn't it? The only father we have is God. And Jesus makes the same point again. If God was your father, you'd love me. Again, what's he saying? He's saying obedience determines or reveals who your father is. 
Obedience determines. And so now Jesus is going to ratchet up the heat. It's been pretty hot. It's pretty hot. I know it's a little warm in here too, but in the conversation, in the conversation it's really warm. And then Jesus says this, which he does a couple, actually does something like this twice in this passage. He says, why is my language not clear to you? This is Jesus, like, really focused. Why is my language not clear to you? Later on, he'll say, I'm telling you the truth. Why do you not believe me? They're locked into this blind alley. And so Jesus, he doesn't even wait for a reply. He's just going to answer his own question. He says, you're unable. He thinks they're constitutionally unable to hear what he says. You belong to your father, the devil. He's a murderer and a liar, and you want to carry out his desires. Now the conversation is not a, is not a mutual dialogue anymore. Here's why you can't hear me. Here's why my, my words are not clear to you. You belong to Satan. He's a murderer and a liar, and you're his children. Now it's out in the open. Abraham is not your father. God is not your father. Satan, the devil, is your father. And it's his deceit and it's his bloodlust that you will resemble as you pursue my execution. Notice the text says, Jesus says, because I tell you the truth. Notice, he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, although I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. He says, because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. The truth actually surfaces your unbelief. And you can't believe me, he says, because you don't belong to God. You have a different father. It could not be more stark than this at this point. This is, as I said, probably the sharpest confrontation Jesus has in the Gospels. So uh, the third point, that's... Paternity. Third point is divinity. They accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan, a half-breed, and demonically possessed. The two are basically the same thing in their minds. You're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. And Jesus says, after a brief rebuttal, he says, whoever obeys my word will never see death. That should calm them down. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. So he's already said, my word is truth, my word sets free, and my voice confers immortality. And now they say, we know, now we know, you're demon-possessed. This is what the claims of who Jesus is do. You know, at least, at least this type of person, at least this type of person uh, in uh, opposition to a lot of modern secularists, at least this type of person gets the flow of the argument. Right? At least they're not indifferent. Right? Those are, in one sense, CS, two of C.S. Lewis's choices. He's either, either the infinite God in human flesh or he's demon-possessed. So, they, go, they continue, Abraham and the prophets died, but you say whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? To which Jesus is thinking something like, we just went over this. <laughs> A, Abraham's not your father. B, yes, I'm greater than Abraham. And so the outrage is boiling over. They say, who do you think you are? Who do they think you are? 
That's how you know you're presenting Jesus properly. When a tuned-in person says, who do you think you are? Who does that guy think he is? Again, Jesus claims that God is his unique father, and he knows God, and they don't. Now, to the question about Abraham, Jesus says this. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. By the way, that's actually not a super offensive state. Watch what happens. Abraham, we know from the New Testament, looked ahead and saw the Messianic age. Right? He was waiting for the Messiah. It's essentially a claim to be the Messiah. Right? But the hearers, the people hear Jesus say this. Now remember, these hearers are those who had believed in him. Right? So Jesus is not talking to outsiders. He's having a conversation with brethren. Right? So they're almost beside themselves with this statement about Abraham. Like, you get this one outlandish, preposterous, implausible claim after the other. And they say, you're not, you're not yet 50 years old. Which is, you know, among other things, they're just really not good at judging ages, right? Jesus is in early, his early 30s. Um, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. And, and you've seen Abraham? Now, notice this. That is not what Jesus said. He said Abraham saw him. His day. He didn't say, I saw Abraham. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he was glad. Now, Jesus is not going to make that clarification that I just made, though. He's going to make a rather explosive clarification. He says, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. That would be a startling claim, but all it would entail is that Jesus is 2,000 years old. It would be a weird claim, but he doesn't say that. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And that is a claim to be the God of Exodus 3, who Moses confronted at the burning bush that you heard read from the Old Testament text this morning. I am who I am. Jesus is claiming to be that one. This is a claim, then, from Jesus of Nazareth to be the God who simply is, who is self-existent, who lives out of himself, who depends on nothing, who is utterly independent, who is transcendent over time, who simply is who he is, the God of whom the prophets speak by saying, I am the Lord, that is my name, I am he. This is the the incomparable God who belongs to no class of beings. God is not in a class, even as the first member of a class, even as the greatest member of a class, even as the highest member of the class. He is likened to no thing. He has his being and existence in himself, of himself, and even as himself. Jesus then claims to be that God, Abraham's God. And they get the nature of this claim. They're actually right about this claim. And they pick up stones to stone him. And he slips away. So I want to close with three brief applications, one for each point in the sermon. First one's really a reminder. Liberty. We must not forget, the Son sets you free and he keeps you free through the Word. And that means remaining and abiding and indwelling and inhabiting and all we spoke of. 
So insert yourself into the world of the word. Live your mental life inside the house of Holy Scripture. If you indwell the word, then Christ the word will indwell in you richly. Colossians tells us that. That's the key to Christian liberty. Second, on paternity here. If we were to ask ourselves, what is Jesus doing in this text? Um, I think a good answer would be, he's unmasking false confessions of faith. He's doing that a lot, of course, in the gospel, but he's certainly doing that here. That's why we're told at the front, these were, in some way, believers. Um, And so, what we have in this text is an example of something I mentioned a few weeks ago. Namely, that being religious and believing in the name of Jesus in some fashion, and even notice, even notice this, being in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. All right, these people have left their homes, traveled to Jerusalem, they're at the feast, right? All of that is not incompatible with demonically inspired lies and plotting to kill the Son of God. Part of this is because they rely on their heritage to the exclusion of faith and obedience, right? And Jesus is trying to unmask this. In the second century, this is about 160 AD or so, there's a famous dialogue between Justin Martyr. Martyr is a convert to the Christian faith, a philosopher who converts to Christianity. And he has this dialogue, you, can, you could find it online, with Trypho the Jew. And they're dialoguing about the truth of Christianity. And Trypho ends the dialogue by saying that the kingdom will be given to the seed of Abraham according to the flesh, even if they are disobedient to God. Right? He echoes the position of Jesus' opponents here. Abraham is our father. That is sufficient. Jesus will have none of this. The people of God show themselves to have Abraham and ultimately God as Father, right? Because we obey the word of Christ. Finally, divinity. You know, answering this question, whose children are we? That's an important question, but it's really important because it points to this deeper question, which is, who is Jesus? Almost every scene in the Gospel of John is about this. In that sense, it's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John, the scenes are driven by the identity of the one speaking. And to get this wrong, to get his identity wrong, as these folks did, Jesus does not see this as a sort of minor theological difference within the tradition of Jewish thought. He doesn't view it that way. He doesn't say, this is a family dispute. It is, and Jesus says this repeatedly, and you can easily slide past this in John's Gospel. To disagree with him about his identity, he says, is to not know God, the Father, who you claim to know. It's really a shocking claim. He says God is known in the revelation he is now making in this moment through me. And to disagree with me about this is to, in fact, not even know the God of Moses. And so he sets forth who he is in this beautiful, sublime simplicity before Abraham was, I am. So 
one thing we should all take from the Gospel of John is the identity of Jesus. He is, in the words of what will be our closing hymn, the God of Abraham, whom we praise, who reigns enthroned above, ancient and everlasting days, and God of love. And the hymn continues, Jehovah, great I am, great I am, by earth and heaven confessed. When we sing that hymn, we are singing it to Jesus. So through this divine son, through his word, you're liberated. Liberated sons and daughters of God the Father, the true seed of Abraham, and you're called to be disciples who remain and indwell and inhabit his teaching, who obey the word which Jesus promises. Once you receive it, you shall never taste death. Amen.